Roger, thank you so much for that beautiful lead-in to our passage of Scripture this morning. As we prepare our hearts together as the people of God to share the Lord's Supper together this morning, I would like you to turn in our ongoing study of the Gospel of John to John chapter 19, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 17 through 30. John chapter 19 and verses 17 through 30 will be the passage of Scripture that we are looking at. And this morning, we come to the most important event in the history of the universe. We come to the event that the entire Gospel of John has been preparing for us. This is a momentous occasion, and that is an understatement. This is the cross of Christ. This is Jesus crucified. In John 19, we saw two weeks ago, last week we had the service in the park. Two weeks ago, um, we saw that Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. Even though On six different occasions, Pilate had declared, I find no guilt in him. I find no fault in him. Under pressure from the Jewish religious leaders, he hands Jesus over to be crucified. And so we read at the end of verse 16 and then 17 through 30, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pied was so bad that they would die even before they were crucified. Deep gashes of flesh taken out of his body, Often their veins and inner organs began to pop out. It was so bad. And in this excruciating pain, he is asked to carry his cross, his own cross. And he carries it for a long distance, and we know from the other Gospels, until they enlist the help of a man named Simon of Cyrene, who then takes the cross from Jesus because of his decimated condition. And they come to the place of a skull. Much has been written and discussed about the place of a skull, why it was called the place of a skull, exactly where it is at. And we're not going to get into all of that this morning. But suffice it to say, this was the place, at least for this area of the Roman Empire, this is where they would crucify people. And this was a place that reeked of death. It was just a place of death. But in verse 18, it says, There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Now it's interesting that the Apostle John, unlike the other three Gospel writers, chooses not to spend much time on the two thieves. He says almost nothing about them except that they were there. His focus, rather, is on the crucifixion, and he states it in such a concise but powerful 
manner. There they crucified him. In the Greek language, it is simply three words. Him they crucified. Crucifixion, as you may know, was one of the most cruel forms of death ever conceived of by any empire in human history. It is said that the person who was crucified died a thousand deaths. Large spikes were driven through their hands and their feet. The crucified person experienced severe inflammation. The swelling of the wounds was intense from where the nails had been driven in. There was unbearable pain from the torn tendons, from the way they hung and from the spikes that were driven in them. There was constant agony from the strained position of the body hanging on the cross. A crucified person would have a throbbing headache and would experience burning thirst. Entire papers, long Dissertations have been written on the agony and suffering of Roman crucifixion. And it was. It was horrible, unthinkable. However, as I have shared with you so many times, that was only a small part of Jesus' suffering. The great suffering came because as he hung for those three hours of darkness on the cross, which the other gospel writers tell us about. God the Father had placed all the sins of all time on Jesus, and Jesus was punished for those sins, our sins, my sins, your sins, thoroughly. He was experiencing the judgment of God, the wrath of God, the punishment of God for every sin ever committed. He experienced on the cross somehow, some way, supernaturally, your hell and my hell for all eternity in our place. In Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46, it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father turns his back on God the Son. He is left in complete isolation and abandonment as he suffers for your sins and my sins and is thoroughly thoroughly punished for our sins. In verse 19, it says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. On the cross was a placard, a sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it's so interesting that that is what Pilate chose to write. As we have gone through chapters 18 and the first part of chapter 19, we have seen that Pilate was an extremely conflicted man. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that Pilate 
had some sense of fear that Jesus was indeed a king. As I mentioned, six times he had said, I find no guilt in him. His wife, his own wife, had sent him a note saying, I suffered much because of this man in a dream, because he is innocent. And so he chooses to put that sign on Jesus' cross. In verse 20, it says many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. A lot of people in that area. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So, it said Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Aramaic was the language spoken by the Jews of Palestine at this time. Latin was the language spoken in the Roman Empire, especially among those who were more educated and among government officials. Greek was the worldwide trade and commerce language. It was the common language of trade in the world at that time. This may seem like an incidental verse, but it is not. Don't miss it this morning, folks. This is a great missionary verse. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, was dying for people of every language group. Whatever your language was, whether it was Aramaic or whether it was Latin or whether it was Greek, this is Revelation 5, Jesus was dying for people of every tribe and language and people and nation. He's dying for all of them, and anyone who would come around could read in their language, in their heart language, so they could understand this is Jesus, or Jesus of Nazareth, King, the King of the Jews. In verse 21, we see that this angers the Jewish religious leaders, especially those of the Sanhedrin. It says, so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. This is the charge that they brought against him, that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. They didn't believe he was the king of the Jews, but he claimed to be. They said this man is a threat. He wants to take Caesar's position and authority, which was completely false, but that was the charge they brought against him. And they said, don't, don't put. He's the king of the Jews, but he claims, or excuse me, says he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate responds. Now again, we see Pilate giving in to the Jewish religious leaders earlier. We see Pilate acting cowardly, not wanting this on his own hands, so he just lets them make the decision. He knows. He knows. We know from the other Gospels. He says he knew. He knew that they had delivered Jesus over because of envy. He knows he's innocent. So in this one brief moment, Pilate does take a stand. He takes a stand. In verse 22, Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. I'm not going to change it. One writer said this. He said, These are the words 
of God the Father through Pilate. What is written is written. This is indeed Jesus, King of the Jews. Well, the soldiers who crucified Jesus are completely indifferent to the eternal moment that is happening before them. But even their actions are a fulfillment of Scripture. In verses 23 and 24, it says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This, this was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. I want you to try to imagine being there this morning and the irony of this scene. Here on the cross is the Son of God bearing the sins of all the world for all time. This is indeed perhaps the greatest moment the universe has ever seen. And these Roman soldiers are completely oblivious, indifferent, probably just messing around at the bottom of the cross. It was common for Roman soldiers for a crucified person, when they gave them that crucified person's clothes, they would divide the clothes among them. And then they'd go and sell them and get some extra money for them. But the tunic, they didn't want to tear the tunic because if the tunic was torn, it wasn't worth anything. A tunic was simply one piece of fabric that was folded over. It was tightly sewn on both sides, and then there were places for the arms and the head, and so it was one piece that almost everyone wore, a tunic at this time. And so they gambled, they cast lots for it to see who will get it. And so that's all they care about. Here's Jesus in this great event of history. And all they care about is, what piece of clothing do I get? And they gamble for it. But even that, even their indifferent, oblivious action is a fulfillment of Scripture. Amazing. For in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Little did they know that in their jesting and indifference they were fulfilling the very words of Old Testament prophecy. Our second point is it is finished. The Apostle John makes special mention of the women who stood at the foot of the cross to weep and mourn for their master. In verse 25 it says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Oh, let me tell you, all four gospel writers mention the women who were at the cross. And I want every single person here to know this morning these were brave women. 
These were courageous women. They were women who were loyal to Jesus right up to the very end. They administered to him throughout his three years of ministry. They're with him. They're at the foot of the cross. This is a dangerous place. Because they are crucifying a man that they claim is rebelling against the Roman government, threatening the very rule of Caesar. But they're there. They are there for Jesus. And it's interesting, you'll see in a minute that the Apostle John is there, but most writers believe that John was the only Apostle that was at the foot of the cross. That the others were probably there, but off at a distance, still afraid, after the Garden of Gethsemane. But not these women. They're there. They're so close to him that he can look down and talk to them and they can hear him. I mean, they are right there and they are there for their master, their Lord, their Savior. These women ought to be commended in all of our hearts and minds. Verses 25 and 26, it says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. We know from the upper room discourse that the disciple whom Jesus loved was the Apostle John, the author of this gospel. And of course, this is the only gospel that mentions this scene. The only gospel because John lived it. He not only wrote about it, he lived it. And Jesus is... Mary and John and these women are so close that Jesus in his great agony can look down and talk to them. And he says, woman, behold your son, John. And to the disciple, behold your mother. And John, from that point on, takes Mary into his home. Now, much has been written preached on about how Jesus loved his mother right up to the very end. And that is part of this powerful lesson. Loved his mother. He is in agony, but he makes sure that his own mother is taken care of. But one writer said this. He said, well, that is very true. Don't stop there. Don't stop there. Mary was not just his mother. Mary was now one of his disciples one of his loyal followers. Jesus is caring for his own right to the very end. And above all these things, I want every one of us to see that Jesus loves you right to the very end. He is, and we're going to see it in a minute, he is dying of thirst. He is in an excruciating and unbelievable pain beyond anything any of us can comprehend, and yet he gathers the strength to say, John, take care of Mary. Make sure that when I'm gone, you take care of Mary. That is the infinite, everlasting, amazing love of Jesus that he has not only for Mary, but for each and every one of us. And then we come to that last section. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, 
but John is the only gospel writer who tells us that Jesus said, it is finished. Some of the most important words ever spoken. In verse 28, it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. In fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, right down to the most minute detail, Jesus says, I thirst. And folks, he was burning with thirst. Burning with thirst, again, beyond anything we can understand or imagine. But think of this. Think of the infinite love of Jesus. He is willing to suffer burning thirst so that he can become the everlasting fountain of living water for you and for me. He is willing to suffer burning thirst so that he can become the everlasting fountain of living water and can say to every one of us, come and drink of the living water. So he can say to the woman at the well, come and drink of the living water, the true water. And in verse 29, it says, A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Very important moment in biblical history. When Jesus had received the sour wine, at that very moment, when he had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Notice at the very end it says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We have seen throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus voluntarily lays down his life. No one took it from him. He gave up his spirit. No one took it from him. But he says, three of the most important words in your Christian life Three of the most important words in all of history, in all of biblical history. It is finished. Everything. And I mean not 99.9%, but 100% of everything necessary to accomplish a full and free salvation for each and every one of us was now done. It's done. Greater words than these have never been spoken. It is is finished. Your salvation is finished. Some people say, but what about the burial? What about the resurrection? Aren't they part of our salvation? Yes, they are, but these words are written in such a fashion that they are so true and so determined that it is assumed, taken for granted, that the burial and resurrection, in essence, will take place and, in a sense, have already taken place. It's all encompassed in those words. It is finished. The entire Gospel of John and all of history have been waiting for this moment. This one moment when Jesus says, it is finished. This is the accomplished work that you put your faith and trust in. You look at the cross of Christ and what he did for you. You put your faith and trust in it and nothing else. And that is how you are saved. That's how you have eternal life. That is how you are forgiven of all of your sins. This is it. 
This is it. Earlier, we saw Pilate bring out a bloodied and uh, beaten Jesus and say to the people, Behold the man. Well, I say to you, as you see Jesus on the cross saying it is finished, I say to you, Behold your salvation. Behold your salvation. That is why salvation is not something you do. It is something that has been done for you. You can simply, all you can do is receive it as a free gift that has been fully paid on your behalf. There's only one place, one place, folks, that you can meet God, and that is at the foot of the cross. You can't come to God by your good works. You can't come to God by your religion. You can't come to God even by trying to read the Bible many times. You come to God only at the cross of Christ, accepting his death and resurrection on your behalf. You say, Pastor Tim, exactly how do I do this thing? Well, first of all, you admit that you have a need that you are sinful and in need of a Savior. Second, you turn from your sins, you turn away from your sins, and you turn to the cross and trust in that alone. And you believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ didn't just die, he died for you. He died for you on the cross and rose from the grave for you. And then through prayer, you invite Jesus to come into your life You invite Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior. As we take communion in just a few minutes, it is a perfect time for you, right where you're seated, if you've never done this, to pray to ask Jesus to come into your life. We have an example prayer on the next to last page of the bulletin that you can look at. Today could be your day, the day that you make sure you have received Jesus as your Savior. I'm not sure there is a better communion passage in all of the Bible. So as we share the Lord's Supper together, I want you to think deeply about what is happening here in John chapter 19. If you're visiting with us this morning as we take communion, one deacon will pray for the bread and the cup. The deacons will hand out the bread and cup together. And when everyone has been served, I will read a passage of scripture and then we will eat and drink together. If you're watching by live stream this morning, we want to encourage you that while the deacons are serving communion, this is an important time, right where you're at in your home or wherever you're at, for you to meditate carefully on what Christ has accomplished for you. At this time, we will share the Lord's Supper together.